This is episode 581 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. It appears the nations aligning themselves against Israel and for Hamas are taking on a familiar picture. They are, almost to a country, those prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39 as part of the Gog and Magog confederation that will invade Israel in the latter days. You might want to read the account in Ezekiel for yourself. And if that is true, then we are closer to the tribulation and the return of Christ than we can possibly imagine. So who are Gog and Magog, and why are they compelled to invade Israel? What is the Lord's purpose in bringing this mass of people against His chosen people? And what happens when God intervenes on Israel's behalf? Let me give you a sneak peek. It ain't pretty, like Sodom and Gomorrah, not pretty. So join us as we look closer at Ezekiel 38, the Gog and Magog invasion of Israel, and try to determine if this is something yet to come, or is it happening right before our eyes? And if so, we need to prepare ourselves by learning how to leave Laodicea behind. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about the Gog and Magog conflict, and I laid out for you the various um, countries that are going to be involved in that. I'm going to do that again in the first 15 minutes, just so that everybody will be uh, up to date on this. This is that uh, conflict that theologians have talked about for centuries, the Ezekiel 38 and 39 conflict. The question, of course, is when is this going to take place? When is it going to happen? And what are the signs leading up to that? I will tell you, the more I've studied this, the debate between whether this takes place during the first half of the tribulation period or whether it takes place prior to the rapture, I am firmly convinced after studying this that this is an event that does not take place during the, um, during the tribulation period, but actually is a precursor to the events we see during the 70th week of Daniel. The major argument for it happening um, either right before the tribulation or during the tribulation time is the fact that Israel is, uh, you know, doesn't, it's not protecting themselves. It's, it's the Gog thinks he's going to a land of unwalled villages. Of course, that's his perception. It doesn't actually say that they are unwalled villages. That's his perception. And we're going to read a verse today that talks about this great earthquake that takes place in Israel where God rains down hail, fire, and brimstone on the enemies of Israel and destroys them, that every wall shall be broken, every wall shall come crushing down. And Karen and I were talking about this, every means just that. So that also means, and again, the imagery here is of fortifications. It also means that Israel is brought to a point where they can rely on no one but the Lord. And I think um, that's kind of what God does anyway to make you, you know, surrender to him and recognize his lordship. And so if Israel is relying on no one but the Lord, then of course it just makes it really easy for secular Israel to enter into a peace treaty with the Antichrist who will now guarantee their safety since nobody else can and they feel somewhat um, vulnerable. But uh, we will talk about that when we, we get to it. I do want to begin by saying that um, in addition to this Ezekiel 38 and 39 conflict and all the stuff that's going on over there 
and uh, the temporary ceasefire where they supposedly um, rescue some hostages, hostages. But I don't know if you have noticed this satanic darkness that seems to be just falling everywhere worldwide. You know, maybe I'm naive. Um, I understand anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany, but I kind of thought that maybe that was set aside because of woke culture and all this kind of stuff. But it is shocking, just this hatred, this satanic hatred going on against Israel and Christians and anyone who stands with them. So please understand that even though our government right now has taken a position to support Israel, that will very quickly dissipate because the Muslims are threatening no longer to vote Democratic if uh, the Biden administration takes this stand like they are, and they will quickly capitulate, and you will find that uh, there'll be, I know there's a lot of this stuff going on behind the scenes, but there'll be upfront verbal calls for Israel to cease and, and desist and stop doing what they're doing and to go ahead and turn Gaza back over to some sort of plurality of nations. And it's really uh, really amazing to see what's happening right before our eyes. So, the Gog and Magog invasion, as I shared with you before, that uh, all this anger from God about this invasion is towards this entity named Gog. And I believe it's some demonic force or demonic influence because we find Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 16 and later on in Revelation chapter 20. And so let me go ahead and just read this to you and, and give you a quick review here. And understand, it's all about Gog. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is Ezekiel 38, 1 through 3, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. And we're going to define those in a few minutes. Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Last week we looked at Genesis 10, the table of nations, and saw some of these uh, names and, and looked at places where they kind of settled. But it says that, um, that Ezekiel is to set his face as God's prophet against Gog, and to prophesy against him and says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Gog. I don't like you. I'm actually, by my volition, bringing you up for destruction, you Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And then it goes on to explain what God's going to do. I will turn you, Gog, around. Again, imagery. Um, is he not interested in going to Israel? Did all of a sudden he get this euphoric moment where he goes, wow, I know what I can do. I can uh, I have this visitation, and, and I now I can go down to Israel, and I can destroy them because they're wealthy, and they're you know, defenseless, and all that kind of stuff. We, we don't really know, but he says, I'm going to turn you around, and I am going to force you by my sovereign will to do my bidding. I will put hooks in your jaw. That's pretty dramatic. And lead you out, you and all your army, horses, and horsemen all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. But it's not just you, Gog, from Magog. There's also Persia and Ethiopia and Libya that are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Then there's this Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togomah from the far north and all its troops, and many people are with you. There's this confederation of nations and people that are getting ready to attack Israel. And then as I shared with you two weeks ago, we have these other people groups that are mentioned. These people aren't exactly involved in a conflict, 
but they're watching it from afar and they're critical of it and they're kind of shocked that it's happening. We have Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Are you actually doing this? Why are you doing this? You need to stop. Don't know who these people are and in the initial reading, but the more that we uh, start looking at it in the people groups, we're able to pinpoint exactly the people areas. And if we overlay a map over that, the current day countries that are involved in these groups. We have Gog from the land of Magog, Prince of Rosh. Gog, of course, is the leader of this confederation, probably a demonic spirit. We have the land of Magog, which is historically the land of the Scythians, which is Central Asia. And if you looked at a map, and I'm going to show you in a minute, pretty much makes up the countries, the stand countries that broke from the Soviet Union back during the Reagan administration. Uh, Afghanistan, Turkestan, stuff of that nature. And the Prince of Rosh has always historically been identified with modern-day current Russia. So on a map, you've got Russia, you've got all the stand countries in uh, East uh, or Central Asia, then you've got uh, Meshach and Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya, or Put, as some translations have it. Meshach and Tubal is currently modern-day Turkey. Persia is Iran. Ethiopia is modern Sudan, or basically, if you have Egypt, it's those nations south of Egypt in Africa. Put, uh, or Libya, is, the, is modern Libya, and the nations basically west of uh, Egypt, uh, Tunisia, and um, Algeria. Then you have Gomer and the house of Togomar. And Gomer, of course, is central Turkey, and the house of Togoma is modern Turkey, which is directly north of Israel. I showed you this before. If you had a map like this, the, um, Israel is located right in, in the dead center in the very dark olive green, surrounded by a darker green, which happens to be the current uh, Arab League, or the League of Arab Nations, and the lighter green is what's called the Corporation of Arab States, and it's those that are in the same affinity, but not part of the uh, Arab League with, uh, with all these Arab nations. As you can see, this lines up perfectly with uh, exactly what the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion is all about. Make it a little simpler with this map. Israel's in the center. You've got Put and Cush, Persia, Magog, Rosh, and then Meshach. And you'll find a lot of these have to do with Turkey. Turkey is the key player in all of this. And if you see um, what the administration of Turkey is saying about the invasion and Gaza and all that now, you see that they are very much on the side of Iran. So we know who's involved. Now we need to figure out what happens. And that basically takes us through the rest of Ezekiel 38. So again, word of the Lord came to me saying, set your face against Gog because he is against Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And then we find that this is God's action. So I'm going to go ahead and read this, and then we'll go through the rest of these passages. I, this is God speaking, will turn you around, you, Gog from Magog, you, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will put hooks in your jaw, and I will lead you out. God's actions again. I'm doing this. You are with all your army, horses, horsemen, splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Iran or Persia will be with you. 
the modern Sudan, Ethiopia will be with you, Libya, which includes Libya, Algeria, and um, uh, Tunisia will be with you, all of them with shield and helmet, all of them coming for battle. These are the nations and their troops. We're also going to find that there's an inordinate amount of just regular people, possibly proxies that are coming with them also. Gomer, central Turkey and all its troops, the house of Togomar, which is modern Turkey, and that part of Turkey that's directly north of Israel, from the far north with all of its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. God is gathering together these nations, bringing them down to Israel, and bringing them also up to Israel uh, to, um, to invade her and destroy her in their mind. But God is doing this because he wants to show himself powerful to his enemies. When will this happen? Verses 8. After many days, Gog will be visited by something. Doesn't say who, doesn't say what. It could be some sort of spirit or a compelling um, inference from God. And the, the, he will, after many days, he will be visited in the latter years. You will come into the land described as those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountain of Israel. In other words, we're, this is not an invasion that happened in the past. This is an invasion that's happening in the future because Israel now has been brought back from all these nations, and so therefore it has to happen after May 14, 1948. These people who had long been desolate, who were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely or secure or have some sort of assurance. Talks about them coming like a cloud. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and all your troops, and this is important, many people with you. So it's not just the armies that are coming. You will find that there's also, through the Ezekiel 38 passage, there's also an indication that there's also going to be civilians or proxies or groups or gangs or however you want to define them that will also be coming down too, much like what happened in October 7th. It was not the Gaza army that did all the killing. They basically went in there, the professional terrorists, and took out the Israeli defenses, but it was civilians, a couple thousand civilians that went in there and did most of the horrific atrocities. It's like you're just cutting loose these crazy people knowing they're not going to be uh, convicted of any crime. And so you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and all these people with you, Thus said the Lord God, on that day, you will have something in your mind that will tell you this is a wise thing to do. It shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan, and that evil plan is for you to go down there and destroy Israel because they're weak and they're defenseless and they can't take care of themselves. Does not say that's a reality. It indicates that that is exactly what Gog thought about Israel. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. In his mind, he figured it was just a cakewalk. Just go in there and take whatever you want. And maybe that's what was used to encourage all the other people to follow him. 
And so, Gog, what are your intentions? What do you want to do when you get to Israel? Verse 12 says, I want to take plunder, take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited against the people gathered from all the nations who've acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. We are going to go down there and we are going to take all their wealth. We're going to take it for ourselves. We're going to leave them desolate. That's the plan. And then we hit to verse number 13, where all of a sudden these other nations see this going on, and they say, wait a second, that's not right. You can't do that. That bothers me. I'm, I'm not getting involved in the conflict. I'm not going to put boots on the ground. Israel has to go this alone. But I'm really shocked that uh, you're doing this. And so we have Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions now saying, why have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and good, or to take great plunder? Why are you doing this? Doesn't indicate that they did anything about it. They simply voiced their opposition. So the question is, who are these people? Who is Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and who, who are their young lions? We looked at this last week. Sheba, of course, is historically the Sabean kingdom, our modern Yemen right now. We have Dedan, which is modern Saudi Arabia, but all of that area in that peninsula, including the UAE, Kuwait, Qatar, um, it just makes up the rest of that big land segment. The merchants of Tarshish, Tarshish, of course, um, has to do with tin, has historically been singled down to either Great Britain or Spain. The opinion now is more it's probably Great Britain, and their young lions are the colonies or trading partners of Tarshish, uh, either of Great Britain or of Spain, which is possibly the United States. This is one of the two inferences that I've shared with you before that the United States is probably mentioned in Scripture. And this one here talks about the fact that we're watching what's going on, but we're not getting involved for whatever reason. Then all of a sudden, beginning in verse four or 14, God begins to pronounce his judgment on Gog and the confederation, and here's what he says. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus saith the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Do you not realize that I am their protector? Then, obviously not, you will come from your place out of the far north or literally the remotest parts of the north. And if you will take Israel, go straight north all the way up into Russia, you'll find it's pretty close to Moscow. You will come and many people with you, all of them riding horses, a great company and a mighty army. So there's two groups here. You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. And it will be not historically in the past, but in the latter days that I, God's action, will bring you against my land. It's not these evil confederations that want to destroy Israel. It's like God is bringing them to do that for a reason, to deliver Israel and to destroy his enemies. And I'm doing this, God says, so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. 
when you have to cry out and recognize me as sovereign because of the massive defeat that's taking place, then uh, all the nations will know me by you, Gog, hallowing me in their eyes. Thus saith the Lord God, he's asking this question, are you he, Gog, of whom I've spoken in former days by my servant, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Do you remember three weeks ago when we first started this, we talked about, um, we talked about the fact that there's really nowhere in Scripture where Gog shows up. I mean, it says here that he obviously had spoken in the former days, to his prophets of old about Gog and this invasion that was going to take place. We don't see anything in the scripture if it's interpreted by the Jewish Masoretic text. But if you go back to the Septuagint and look up Amos 7.1, and I shared that with you, that it's uh, laid out completely, and it actually defines Gog as the head of a group of locusts who are coming down to Israel to destroy their land. And so the Amos 7.1 passage was a fulfillment of this one. That is the review. Everybody should be up to date right now. And now all of a sudden, God is going to bring judgment. I'm going to slow down a little bit. And when he brings judgment, it is absolutely cataclysmic. I want you to imagine that there's who knows how many millions, multiple millions of people that are storming into Israel from all directions. They're coming from the north down through Turkey. They're coming from the west from uh, Tunisia and Algeria and Libya. They're coming from the south of that, and they're all coming in there. There's Central Asia. They're pouring in there. Israel, is, uh, Israel has many armaments of their own. Strategically, if you've ever looked at the country, it's very difficult to defend. Uh, that's why they've had to have the best of technology, but nevertheless, um, God has intervened in the past in many of their wars uh, he'll have to do that again, which is what happens here. But God de decides to bring some judgment. And the rest of this chapter talks about the judgment, but it also talks about the sovereignty of God behind that. Here's what he says. And it will come to pass, well, when? At the same time, when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that when he comes at that same time, my fury will show in my face, for my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. God is jealous for his children. He is angry at what's going on right now. He has decided to kind of even the score. Israel does not know that they're going to be redeemed by God the way they are. Uh, they think it's just a military attack against them. These hordes of people are coming in there. And then God says this. Here's what I will bring against Israel. Number one, a massive, unimaginable earthquake, um, I think only eclipsed by one that we see in Revelation chapter 16. Surely, he says, in that day there shall be a great earthquake. What, worldwide? No, in the land of Israel, just in the land of Israel. This massive earthquake. To what extent? that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beast of the field, note this word, all things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. 
That means there'll be an earthquake that'll be so powerful that even though if you're in the Middle East and maybe even in Europe at that time, you can feel the rumblings of that. The fact is, if you're in the United States, men will still shake and quake at God's presence because of what he's doing over there. I looked up the Hebrew word for shake, and what it literally means is like to stand somebody in front of you and grab them by the shoulders and go, do you understand? And just shake them like this to get their attention. Is what it's talking about, the shaking here. The birds and the fish, animals on the sea, everything that creeps on the earth, and every man himself will be arrested, be overwhelmed by the presence of God and what he's doing to protect his children. Remember, Israel is God's children. We are the wild vine that's grafted into the vine. We are like what God is doing to make his true children, the chosen people, jealous of him. That's why Paul says, eventually, all true Israel will be saved. And so, you know, God is showing us immense grace and mercy to make them jealous, because, which is a great blessing for us, by the way, because we're not Jews. We're not from the... Uh, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet we're still grafted in as part of his family, which is pretty amazing. But when he does this over in Israel, everybody will be shocked. So what does this earthquake look like that's going to take place? Well, really simple. The mountains will be thrown down. That word literally means to be pulled down, overthrown, and destroyed. They'll be leveled. I can't imagine um, what that must be like uh, the millions of troops that are going to be crushed when all that takes place. The steep places shall fall, are basically lie flat or prostrate, like lying on the ground like you're worshiping. And every, this is the word that we in the Greek is pos, means each and every without exception. And every wall, which again is interpreted not as a wall of a home, but like a wall around a city, something for protection. Every wall shall fall to the ground. Well, if that's true, then that means Israel will have no defenses either. That God is intervening and destroying all of Israel's enemies, and he's also destroying all of um, Israel's defenses. That's what this is idiomatic of, which means Israel will now be defenseless in the flesh against their enemies. And if they rely totally on God, which they don't, they rely totally on God, that would be a really great thing. But since they don't, many of the secularists over there are going to panic. And this may lead to making the peace treaty with the Antichrist, having to somehow get their protection guaranteed by somebody since they're technically defenseless. Just something to think about that we'll unpack later on. So the army show up. Doesn't tell us what Israel's doing. Doesn't tell us that Israel goes out and meets him on the battlefield. It appears that this is happening prior to that. All of a sudden, there's this great earthquake, which throws everything in disarrays. Uh, people are really shocked by all of this. Next, we find that God does again what he's done in the past, and he causes mass confusion among their military, and they get up and start killing each other. You know, maybe, again, there's all these nations that are coming together, so these nations are fighting each other, the people are turning on each other, but the fact is Israel's not involved in this conflict. They're actually doing this to themselves, part of God's judgment. I, God's action, 
will call for a sword against Gog. What, from Israel? No. Throughout my mountains, every man's sword will be against his brother, or literally against his countrymen. And so there's this, like it's happened in the Old Testament before, where the people get so confused, they end up killing killing each other. That's obviously happening too. Israel sitting back and watching God move in a powerful way. Israel thinks that all this is happening because God loves Israel and is protecting Israel, which is true, but the real reason this is happening is because God's name is not hallowed, and he wants it to be hallowed by the enemies of Israel at that time. Next thing that happens is like something out of the book of Revelation. It's, uh, it's rather frightening. You know, these first two things I can understand. Earthquake, got it. Everybody going like bizarre, like they all, you know, took too much fentanyl and are killing each other. Okay, got that. But the third thing is, uh, is something only God can do. And here's what he says. And I, remember these are God's pronouncements, his judgment, will bring him, Gog, to judgment. And I'll do it with pestilence and bloodshed. I'll do it with um, viruses and sicknesses and famines and pestilences. And I will also do it with bloodshed. He said, and how will you do that, God? How How will you bring about your judgment against Gog and all those people with him? Really simple. I will rain down on him and on his troops, and those are the guys in uniform, and on as many people who are with him, all the proxy groups and all the just crazed people that are coming down just to try to destroy, uh, just pour out pure evil on these people. And I will rain down on them flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Flooding rain... Hailstones, when I think of hail, I think of this little bitty pebble hail that kind of, uh, I don't know, messes your car up some. And so imagine what it would be like if these hailstones were even bigger. Revelation um, gives us a picture of something of this. It's not this event, but it's a picture of something like that when God is pouring out his judgment. Talking about the uh, angels opening up their... uh, are pouring out their bowls of wrath. And here's what he says in chapter 16. He says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from the temple of heaven, from the throne, saying, It is done, finished. And there was noises and thunderings and lightnings, like flooding rain, and there was a great earthquake. This is probably the only earthquake ever bigger than the one we see here in Ezekiel 38. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. So I I believe the the Ezekiel 38 earthquake is like the second worst ever, and this happens to be the worst ever. It continues, that the great city was divided in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Sounds exactly like what's happening in Ezekiel 38, only on a grander scale. And it continues. And great hail fell from heaven. Each hailstone weighed about, uh, had the weight of a talent. There are discrepancies in Scripture about how much a talent weighed, a talent of gold, several talents of silver, stuff of that nature. If you take the 
all of the references to that, and even in their culture, you will find that the weight of a talent is somewhere between 33 pounds and 100 pounds. Let's go on a small end. Let's just say 33 pounds. So the turkeys we bought weighed, what, 20 pounds? 20 pounds. So you got hailstones coming twice the weight of a turkey, smashing people, cars. I mean, it was baseball-sized hail that busted holes in your home. Uh, can you imagine what that would be like to an army out in the field, to an army that's away from home, to an army that's living in tents, for example, or to their mechanized divisions and stuff of that nature? But even then in the book of Revelation, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because the, the plague was exceedingly great. It's almost like what's happening in Ezekiel chapter 38 mimics what God is going to do when he pours his wrath out on mankind at the end times, because uh, that's what he's doing here, is pouring his wrath out on Gog. It continues. We get to Revelation chapter 20, and we find that this is how God deals with his enemies. It's towards the end of the book of Revelation. Satan has been bound for almost a thousand years. The, the millennial reign of Christ is almost over. Satan is now released from his bondage. He goes out to show you the depraved nature of men, even during the millennial reign of Christ. And he gathers all these nations again from the four corners of the earth. The same spirit now is there, Gog and Magog, and they're coming against God to try to defeat him one more time. Now, when a thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out into to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, same demonic spirit, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is at the sea, uh, sand of the sea. Came like a cloud, Amos 7 says, or like locusts covering the land. Revelation 20 says, there's so many of them you can't even imagine. And when God sees that, his response there is just like his response is here. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They're attacking Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's it. <sighs> Gone. There's no battle of Armageddon where we get our troops together and their troops together and have a military campaign. Fire comes down and incinerates them all. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So in Ezekiel 38, we have God bringing the enemies of himself and the enemies of his people, where anti-Semitism is obviously greater than it has ever been at that time, which is what we're seeing, the beginnings of now worldwide, not just among various nations. The, uh, he brings them down to the to Israel when they're getting ready to take Jerusalem and who knows what else, and he destroys them then in Ezekiel 38, and as he will destroy them at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. But here's why, and here's what you need to understand. Here's the reason why. God, why are you doing this? You, you, you visited Gog, you turned him around, which means he wasn't heading in this direction, and you brought him in this direction. He was visited by something that gave him this permission, in his mind, maybe this delusion of grandeur that, hey, it's okay, we're going to, uh, 
We're going to go down there and we're going to destroy them and wipe them out. Nobody will defend them. It's unwalled villages. And, you know, we'll just come in and just take everything they've got. Not only all the armies, because we're all, you know, maybe Muslims at this time. We're all going to go down and destroy them. But we're also going to bring, a, you know, all this horde of people with us. Just come on down and plunder these people. Why, God, are you doing that? What's your purpose behind it? Is it to defend and protect Israel? Not really. It's to glorify himself. Thus, because of this, I will magnify myself and I will sanctify myself. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations. The word know here, or known, uh, there's a couple Hebrew words that um, are translated know. Um, there's more Greek words that are like gnosko, which is uh, 1097, or uh, epikinosko, or edo, or stuff of that nature. If you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word yada is translated in the Greek gnosko. So in other words, this means to know experientially, not to know just cognitively. So he says that I will magnify myself and sanctify myself because I will be known, I'll be revered and feared and known by experience in the eyes of many nations. Then they, whoever they are, shall also know by experience that I am the Lord. They will know that I am he. So, um, I got a question, God. Um, this seems kind of out of character for you, but um, maybe it's our woke interpretation of you, but, but you brought all these people down to Israel, and you obviously put a hook in the jaw of God to make sure he came, and you brought them all down on the plains here, and you destroyed them cataclysmically, and you did this because you wanted them to recognize that you were God. Yes. Wow. What if they didn't want to come? What if, what if God was really a good guy? What if he uh, was getting ready to surrender his life to you and, you know, and declare you king of kings and lord of lords? So you forced him to do something he didn't want to do. God, I don't understand that. That seems out of character for you because isn't everybody good and is going to go to heaven when they die unless... They're stupid enough to disqualify themselves? Or is it the opposite, where there's no one good? No one deserves to go to heaven. We all deserve to go to hell unless, by God's grace, we receive his mercy. If you'll turn to Romans 9, this is the exact um, teaching Paul is given about the sovereignty of God, especially regarding Israel. Romans chapter 8, of course, talks about the fact of us being children and joint heirs and um, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And it talks about election. And it talks about this, this chain of salvation. And, and when that ends, it, chapter 9 begins with the fact of Paul saying, yeah, but Israel has rejected Christ. And I wish Israel had rejected Christ because uh, if it was possible, I would give my own salvation for, sake, for the sake of the true Jews. Well, Paul, I thought you said that all Israel was going to be saved. Well, well, I did. Well, doesn't it sound like that's not really coming true? Verse 6. No. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not that the word of God is 
void here, for they are all not Israel who are of Israel. In other words, we're not talking about the nation of Israel nationally. We're talking about the spirit of Israel, those people that truly belong to God. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 8, that is, those who are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his seed. Verse 8, for this is the word of promise. This is from Genesis 18. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. The word love there is agape. Wait a second, God doesn't see fair. You've got two kids here, and then you've already decided they haven't, we don't even know who's the good kid and the bad kid. We don't even know who's the one that's going to love you and not love you. We don't know who's the axe murderer or the Nobel Peace Prize winner. We don't even, we don't even know how, how that works out. But you're saying because they haven't done anything, because your doctrine of election will stand, that you've said the older shall serve the younger. Not his fault, but he will, because Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. So the people say, that's not fair. That's not fair. How in the world can you hold Esau accountable for his sins when you made that happen? I mean, you're the one that said that you only love Jacob and not Esau, and that, that doesn't make any sense. Then why is Esau punished for being who he was when you could have changed it before they were born by saying something different? Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God not being fair? Is God doing things for his own glory and not for other people? Certainly not. Because here's another example. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. So then it was not of him who wills or him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, watch this. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. I have made you Pharaoh. I have brought Moses before you. I have hardened your heart so that you will say no to the 10 warnings that I gave. I have done this for one reason and one reason only. Yes, collaterally to rescue my people, but primarily to show that my power is greater than your power, and I am a great God, and I demand to be worshipped. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name will be declared in all the earth. Summary. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Which brings us to verse 18, if you're looking at Romans 9. Question was, therefore, um, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. I'm sorry, verse 19. Then you will say to me, why does he still find fault? 
If he hardened Pharaoh's heart, then maybe it's not Pharaoh's fault. Maybe Pharaoh wanted to let him go, but God said no. And we're going to impute all these negative things to God, and he never defends himself. He simply says this, um, verse 19, For you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to answer back to God? Who are you to even ask that question of a sovereign God? And then he goes on to say, does he not have the right out of the same lump of clay to make vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor? Implied, you should just be thankful you were chosen. I want you to look at Malachi chapter 1, last book of the Old Testament. I find this uh, somewhat frightening. The Lord through Malachi is talking primarily to priests in the beginning. The Lord through Malachi is basically chastising you and I because we know him but don't revere him. We know him but don't give him honor and glory like we should. We kind of take everything for granted. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Our question. Yeah, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Well, um, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I loved, but Esau I've hated and laid waste his mountain and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Aedem has said, we have been impoverished, we will return and build the desolate places, thus say the Lord of hosts. God says, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will, the Lord will have indignation forever. Which is kind of what we're seeing here in Ezekiel chapter 38. Your ears shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And then he goes on to say this, I have done all of this for you, but how have you treated me? Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. I agree. Well, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. And the priests cry out and say, how, what way have we despised your name? You spend everything on you and give nothing to me. Verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar. And the priests say, how have we done that? How have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the sick and lame, offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer to your governor, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? We take God for granted. We take God for granted when it comes to church. We do things in here, in his presence, we would never do with our bosses. But we do it anyway. Verse 8, would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But go ahead and now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who there, even among you, who would shut the doors, that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. Why? For from the rising of the sun, verse 11, to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. 
In every place incense shall be offered in my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord. But you profane it, and then you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what weariness. We have to go to church again. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hands, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am third time a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations." All throughout Scripture, you will find something that's not really spoken much of today, that God continually says, I am a great God, and you will recognize my greatness, or I will humble you and make you. That I will not put up with flippancy and lukewarmness forever. The purpose of what's happening in Ezekiel 38 is to bring God's enemies to recognize how powerful God truly is. Chapter 38 ends, and I shared with you last week, it brings us right up to chapter 39, which we'll talk about next week. Chapter 39, of course, deals with the aftermath of this. And uh, there's an indication here that nuclear weapons, or some sort of nuclear weapons may have been used um, it talks about the possible destruction of the United States. It doesn't necessarily mean all of it, but it does as a major world power here. Uh, we find that in verse number 6 of 39, where it says, And I will send fire on Magog and those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. If this is a reference to our nation that's been protected from world wars and all the drama over in Europe and Asia because of the two coastlands that we have, then if God brings us down into judgment, which we are way past time for that, he's doing it because he wants us to know that he is the Lord. So what do we do? How do we, how, how do we, how do we move forward um, thinking that maybe, maybe the way things are lining up, something like this could be right around the corner. It just takes a couple miscalculations for that to happen. The whole point of this is uh, not to put you in fear, but to once again give you a motivation for recognizing how great a God our God is. You know, he's not a God to be trifled with. We, can, we have a tendency of thinking God is love, 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 and he is. But there's also a justice side to that. God is full of mercy and God is full of justice. We love our children. We love them immensely. We would do anything for our children. We would, we would give our lives for our children. But if we never corrected them when they were heading the wrong direction, we're terrible parents. And sometimes parenting is hard. Sometimes it's painful for a child. Sometimes we have to chastise our children. And uh, God says he chastises those that he loves. Sometimes he chastises nations. And we have stuck our fist in the face of God for all my life, since, I've, since I, I can remember. And even the church has never taken a position of strong obedience to him because we'd really rather the world just leave us alone. They're not. They're not. They're coming after us. Uh, we, they're not going to let us just uh, 
you know, have our whole, holy little huddles and do our things on our own. They're, they want obedience and compliance. And the best thing that we can do is yield ourselves and surrender ourselves to him while we still can and grow strong in our faith to be able to withstand whatever the enemy throws our way. Would you not agree? And listen, this is not something, not something we can do corporately. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. We can't even do it together. We can celebrate it together. We can you know, function as surrendered individuals together. But you have to surrender to him on your own. I have to surrender to him on my own. If two of us do that, then we can come together as a church of two who are surrendered to him and, and see how God moves in our midst. But it has to be done individually. Colin has to do it for Colin. Karen has to do it for Karen. You know, I've got to do it for me. And we've been talking about this for years. And I know, um, you know, we try and try to do a little bit better, but, you know, there's all this world out there and there's money we have to make and there's vacations we have to take and there's, our, our plate is so full and all that kind of stuff, just moving on with life. But it's, it's, um, it is time. It's time. It's one thing, um, personal opinion here, it's one thing to see an election stolen right before our eyes. Don't even know how that happened. And you've, you've seen the charts, right? You know, I mean, bang, okay. And, you know, okay. And we didn't do anything about it. I don't know what we could do about it. We didn't do anything about it. And, you know, we had the whole COVID thing where bars and nightclubs and pot dispensaries are essential and they can stay open, but churches can't. You know, it's insane times that, that we've all faced and we've known it's getting progressively worse. And yet most of us, including myself, have thought, well, it's not bad enough yet. October 7th happened and these atrocities took place. And now Israel is going through and like leveling Gaza and all these other countries are getting involved. And, you know, we look in all these other countries and Ezekiel 38 are kind of lining up for this. And we can see it's just right here. I mean, something, I mean, who knows what could happen? And there's just another warning and another chance. And how long is it going to take? When are you going to do this? When is it important enough to give God everything? And I, I can't implore to you enough that the time is now. Now. Set everything aside and surrender it to him and let him live his life through you. And when he does, he makes no mistakes. Amen? Anyway, let me pray, see if you have any questions about this, and then we'll do uh, 39 next week.